I feel very fortunate that I've been able to grow a company that means something mm-hmm. and means something to not just me and my family, but means something to my community. Welcome to Rise Leaders Radio. This podcast focuses on exemplary leadership, the type of leadership that brings about positive, meaningful change in places that matter. We explore how these leaders make things happen and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. I had the good fortune of an interview with David Spence, the owner of Good Space. Good Space is a real estate development and management company in the Bishop Arts area of Oak Cliff in the southern sector of Dallas. David's been at it here for a while and his meticulously renovated buildings are a hallmark of the area. We held our interview in the Bishop Arts building, which was David's very first project. This beauty has been here since 1928. We roamed around a bit in the conversation, covering topics such as how the local topography has shaped the culture and personality of Oak Cliffers, the schizophrenic nature of balancing preservation and progress, and the good fortune of working in alignment with one's purpose. When given the choice of one last topic, David shares his views on gentrification. He's been living and working in the area through its transformation and has adopted an experience-based and nuanced views on all these topics. Before we head over to the interview, I want to invite you to check out the show notes for each episode best accessed on the Rise Leaders website. I quite enjoy creating these and linking you all to resources related to our conversation and that might be a good companion in your own life journey. Now to join David in the conference room at Good Space. You've been down here for about 25, 27 years, is that right? That's right, since 1992, August of 1992. All right. So how did you get here and why good space and just get started there. We'll, well just riff. I didn't grow up in Texas, but my wife and I both spent our teenage years here. We went off to Peace Corps after college and then did graduate school. And while in graduate school in North Carolina, I unexpectedly got homesick for Texas. So I asked Cindy if she'd be willing to move back to Texas. And being a good Houston girl, she said, any place but Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, that sealed our fate that the only job offer I would get would come from Dallas. So I came to Dallas. While in North Carolina, I had become interested in a nonprofit field called community economic development and was lucky to work under a really brilliant mentor there. So I came to Dallas wanting to enter the same field, came here to work for Southern Dallas Development Corporation. And when I was interviewing with the president of SDDC, I discovered that he was the only one working there who actually lived in the Southern sector. So purely pandering, I said, well, my wife and I, we will absolutely settle in the Southern 
sector of Dallas. I didn't know what that meant. So I spent the summer, having made that commitment, I spent the summer studying for the bar exam in Waco, and I would drive up here and just drive the neighborhoods south of Interstate 30. And you already knew that you had the job here. I knew I had the job here. I knew which neighborhood I would be working in. And discovered Oak Cliff. I can remember the street, the lovely curved street, big trees in the Elmwood area that I happened upon. And I drove right to a payphone and (laughs) put in a quarter and called my wife back in North Carolina and said, I think I found where we're going to live. It's called Oak Cliff. And we have been here since. Originally, when we came to Dallas, we thought it would just be a way station on our way to San Antonio or Austin, where we were more attracted to. But here we are. And to tell you the truth, I never really have felt like I lived in Dallas, typical Dallas. I live in Oak Cliff. And it's a community unto itself with a personality very different than Dallas at large. Yeah. I'm wondering how you've seen that personality change. So did you all move to Elmwood first? And is no, that where you are now? No, no, we did not. That's just where I happened okay. into. Our first house was in the Kessler Plaza edition mm-hmm. in the shadow of Sunset High School. Right. So how do you characterize the personality? What did you feel? And does it still feel the same or right. is does, it feeling is different? It, right. Do I live in the same Oak Cliff that I moved to? I would say emphatically, yes. Hmm. And I know there's a lot of hand-wringing in Oak Cliff with all of the changes and new investment and new people coming in that we have somehow lost our soul. And I don't subscribe to that, namely because I just don't think you change the character of a 100-year-old neighborhood in 20 years. Oak Cliff still has a real independent streak, which dates back to when it was a city unto itself until 1903. But probably more importantly, that river, the Trinity River, has formed our independence because it wasn't until the 1950s that the Army Corps of Engineers got control of the river. Before then, it would flood uncontrollably and Oak Cliff could be cut off from the rest of Dallas for weeks at a time. This happened many times, which explains why Oak Cliff has its own downtown strip, Jefferson Boulevard. Oak Cliff is also always attracted idealists and contrarians all the way back to the La Reunion settlement. That's right. It also, (laughs) you know, Oak Cliff, C. Bonnie and Clyde, probably was overrepresented in producing criminals (laughs) 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 and housing them. So anyway, so there's always, I mean, you know, there's lots of lively stories still among old timers about stills and numbers rackets and gambling and clubs and such in Oak Cliff. And that is part of our It's probably what, and not knowing all of that history, probably what we felt and why we moved down here. And what's interesting is that it's not just the independent spirit, but like I said, it's also attracted some really intelligent people who can make things happen. I don't know if it was just the independence, the feeling of independence down here that has attracted that spirit, but we like that. Well, when you move down here, it requires still a certain resourcefulness, a willingness to be resourceful that you're not called upon to have in North Dallas, where everything, services, education, capital is all at your feet. And Oak Cliff doesn't have that, you know, historically has not. And so you kind of have to make your own. You know, another thing that has happened during the years that I've been here is the Hispanicization 
a vote cliff, which notwithstanding the number of Central Americans and such that are coming across the border, is essentially Mexican. Mm -hmm. And like half the Mexicans in North Oak Cliff are from the state of Guanajuato. We have so many folks from Guanajuato that there's a Guanajuato Cultural Center here. So that Uh, would be like the equivalent if there were so many Texans in Paris that there would be a Texas Cultural Center. So, you know, in terms of new influences to Oak Cliff or eroding old mindsets or values or anything like that. Where the invasion has actually come is not so much the hipsters and gentrifiers. It's it's our Mexican neighbors mm-hmm. who have come and settled in here. And now, of course, now they're Mexican-American, not Mexican. But all of those values have dovetailed just fine with Oak Cliff. Again, Mexicans, by and large, have this terrific resourcefulness that has just fit in well mm-hmm. with Oak Cliff and kind of an independent spirit. So no, Oak Cliff is still pretty much the same as the day that I moved here in terms of its soul. Now we have better shopping. (laughs) Right, right. And a (laughs) streetcar. And a a streetcar. And so this Bishop Arts area feels to me like the core of where it started. Development and big turnaround started here, but it's happening in other places. It's interesting. One I'll call it a controversy. (laughs) One issue right now at City Hall is that in 2010, we passed 350 acres worth of new zoning, very progressive zoning in and around Bishop Arts that has allowed most of the exciting things that you're talking about, all the way from coffee shops to the larger developments. And the zoning contemplates the kind of uses that require more than 50 by 115 feet to do them. So they need to be replatted. And there has been resistance, mainly among some neighborhood activists, to seeing lots combined in the replatting process. Replatting just means you take two small parcels and you make them one larger parcel. And so we're in this position now where we've got the zoning to attract this kind of investment. But you have to combine the lots into larger lots, go through the replatting process. And that's kind of a dodgy proposition these days. But that is an example of the tension that you're talking about between large and small, mm-hmm. decentralized and centralized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is there an element of preservation and progress in that tension as well? If you have the neighborhood activists, what are they active about? Well... We're very schizophrenic down here. We have all gotten used to walking and shopping and living in a street grid that predates the automobile. You and I right now are sitting in a building whose lot was platted in 1881, I think. Hmm. So all these streets were laid out for horses and buggies. Not cars, much less the 18-wheelers that deliver the beer to the restaurant. Right. There's a wonderful charm about that, but it's incompatible with new investment. We just can't squeeze. Just you compare the size of your great-grandmother's kitchen to the kitchen that you may have remodeled when you moved down Mm -hmm. here. You -hmm. just can't fit all the mod cons, as they say, into an old space, and it's the same with development. And part of our schizophrenia is also that even the new urbanist activists and the preservationists, we're all really a product of 
the suburbs and suburban post-World War II suburban zoning. And so we have this notion, which is not indigenous to the area. We have this notion that uses should be neatly separated, that you shouldn't have a bar anywhere near a house. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have a playground anywhere near a restaurant or uh, manufacturing, etc. And that's not how it was. You know, the building we're in now, there was an industrial use in this rear garage area, a restaurant and personal services in the front storefronts and apartments up top. And behind us, a physician practiced medicine out of the little bungalow behind it. And that was totally typical of these neighborhoods and the commingling of uses. And so it's an irony of kind of the orthodox historic preservation right now is that we impose this idea that everything is going to be the same. You know, all the houses will be painted the same kind of colors and have the same styles and they will all be residences and there will be no apartments among them or there will be no people actually earning a living in those houses. That's a post-World War II construct that is not original to the area. And so as a developer, it seems that knowing this and having that kind of perspective is important. And also, I wonder, as a person developing down here, what you've had to develop in yourself as far as patience, being able to speak to people with different perspectives. <laughs> I, I don't know what skills you've had to keep oh, it I going. Oh, I no skills for that. <laughs> no. So I wound up in real estate because I enjoy fixing things, mm-hmm. restoring things. And at the time that I started this, you couldn't make any money. Spending the kind of money that I would spend on a building, you couldn't recapture that by immediately selling it. I needed to lease it. And that's why I got into the leasing. But temperamentally, I am very poorly suited for real estate <laughs> because it is. I mean, you're having to line up entitlements and such with the city, and that takes forever. And real estate just takes time to come to fruition. And I'm not known for my patience. So what, also, what keeps you in the game then? I mean, it doesn't sound like temperamentally it wasn't a good fit. And yet, I still just, like doing what I do. Just It's the space itself. It's the space itself. And I get a big thrill out of bringing new enterprises to Oak Cliff. You know, Lucia Restaurant, which is about 40 feet from where we're recording right now. David Uger was a sous chef, didn't have his own place, was untried in that respect, and they cobbled together the money to open up a restaurant completely implausibly in 1,134 square feet with 30 seats. That's not going to work in Dallas. And nine weeks after Jennifer and David opened, they earned five stars, and it's been a roller coaster ever since. You know, and in absolutely in every sense of the word, David is an artist. He practices the culinary arts, but absolutely is an artist. Yeah. And Jennifer and David make a pretty good business team as well. So that's pretty special to have brought that to Oak Cliff. Mm-hmm. So that keeps me in the game. If I have to be patient and if I have to deal with the city in order to pull off Lucia or things like it, then I guess I will. So you just have to keep that bigger perspective in mind? I'm just obliged to grow personally. (laughs) (laughs) It's very painful. (laughs) I don't do it naturally. (laughs) 
Well, also, while we're talking about tenants, I really loved your, and I've thought about this so much, our last conversation. When we were talking about tenants, because we were sitting there at Oak Cliff Coffee Roasters, mm-hmm. and you have the building. Lamentably not one of my tenants. Right, right. <laughs> you have the building just west Mm-hmm. of Oak Cliff Coffee Roasters. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about tenants and turnover and how you select people. And you actually will recruit tenants, but you have a particular way of working with people. And just to call it out, like you want to see their business plan. I do. And I don't know how common that is, but talk about your reasoning for that, wanting to see that business plan. Ultimately, it's laziness. <laughs> because you don't give yourself two, enough credit. Two years later, I don't want to have to be going through the same process. So I aspire to keep tenants for a long time. Now, typically, I don't have many leases that extend much beyond five years. Some I do. But even if somebody signs an initial three year lease to open up their boutique, I'd like to keep them for 10 years or 15. And so. To the extent that I have some business training, I did. I grew up the son of an entrepreneur, grandson of two entrepreneurs. And then when I was getting my MBA, I spent some time studying how to start a business and such and have been an observer. So not that I can peer into the soul of an entrepreneur, but I've gotten better at spotting indicators of success. And what are those? Well, a plan. (laughs) A plan is a good start. Adequate capital, experience, a clever idea, something that's distinct, and then that resourcefulness, Mm -hmm. the regard of people with whom that prospect has done business, i.e. landlord's reference, their co or former co-workers said about them, how they're known in their industry. You know, David Uecker's a great example. People were just lining up to tell me how talented (laughs) and what an incredibly nice guy David Uecker is, which, by the way, is not a common combination among chefs. Chefs, right. (laughs) (laughs) There, There is actually a correlation between talent and abrasiveness, apparently, in that field. And he, and, but he broke the mold uh, there. He broke the mold. Yeah. He yeah. broke the mold. And of course, he's married to Jennifer Uger, and that would have sealed the deal anyway, because Jennifer's fabulous. So your classic real estate person is into the gamesmanship and the deal making and such. That really does not interest me much. But what does interest me is kind of the game of predicting whether somebody mm. will succeed. And I have found but particularly in residential leasing, that the conventional measures of success, i.e. your credit score, are actually not very good predictors. I will pay much more attention to a person's handshake and eye contact than I will to their credit score. Would you rent to me? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no way. No. <laughs> That's so old fashioned, you know, but because I was reading through my notes and I was like a handshake and look in the eye. And yet it says so much. Handshake is not the basis of the deal. I mean, I have a lease and I'm actually fairly particular Mm -hmm. about laying things out, being an attorney. But it really isn't that difficult. You know, it's been a long time since I was actually the one to make a lease decision about my apartments, my assistants, Sherry Mathis at this point, have been making most of those decisions for 20 years, and I have taught each of those people to do it. And 
they picked it up and yeah. each enjoyed the success mm-hmm. of her predecessor. So it can't be too hard, but it's just one of those times when I'm actually at an advantage being in a field for which I wasn't really trained you know, that I didn't come up through real estate brokers. I don't have my real estate license. I didn't work as a realtor, things like that. And so I'm unencumbered by conventional wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. We talked also about threads in your life. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I'm just going to ask you this risking that you're going to say, no, I don't believe that all. But I wonder if you think that people, we all have a, some purpose, like we have a unique set of skills and abilities that says, ah, where this is your sweet spot. Do you believe that? Well, I know that before I started Good Space, I was well-trained for the job that I was doing and that my heart was in the right place and that I worked at it and that I was mediocre at it. And that as soon as I started Good Space, I tell people the last day of my last job back in 95 was the last time I actually worked (laughs) because all of a sudden it just became play. It became natural. My skill set all of a sudden was like, oh, this is what I, I mean, it became so effortless. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I definitely found my special purpose. (laughs) Yeah. As Steve Martin says. Not the same one as Steve Martin's. (laughs) (laughs) And that is an epiphany that I would wish for both my children and my wife also has that. She very much feels like she is doing what she was put here to do. But there's a certain luxury. To, not everybody has that, the luxury of doing exactly what they want to do. In terms of, gets back to your question about picking tenants, it's great when I can find somebody who it's just palpable that they have the skill set and the drive to do what they want to do. And by the same token, I'm always amazed how many people make a living doing things that they're not really competent at, (laughs) you know, that they don't really enjoy. And that comes out, but you can kind of feel it Mm -hmm. when someone has found their groove. And of course, it's very gratifying to help them find their groove to enable somebody like David Uger to hit his stride. Boy, and he has, hasn't he? That's just um, getting a table at Lucia. You have to plan that a month out, exactly a month, because they don't open the tables up more than a month in advance. It is, it is. So you had talked about before dumpster diving and coming up with the lamp. Mm-hmm. This was creating. not last week. This was when I was a child. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. But, you know, kind of a thread, too, is that being able to see something that other people can't see? Well, we all have our talents. But yes, for some reason, I can walk into an old building and just almost instantly see how I want it to be when I'm done. Mm -hmm. Some people can look at a vacant piece of land and see in three dimensions what they want to build. I cannot do that. It's kind of interesting that I can do one, but I just simply can't do the other. You know, I think people who writers and other creative types have that. It's interesting. Once I once bought a big old shed of a warehouse. It was undivided 7,000 square feet. And this was at a time when artists were getting priced out of the Bishop Arts District. And so I thought, well, I'll partition this building up and lease it out as inexpensive art studios, artist studios. And I tried 
And of course, there were no walls. So I tried advertising it, marketing it on the basis of you tell me where to put the walls, I'll put the walls. I interviewed, showed it to a number of artists, and I had no luck. And it was interesting that even though artists, obviously visual people, they could not look at a big empty space and imagine it subdivided. Once I said, well, then I'll decide where the walls go. And I put up the walls and the, the studios leased and they continued to lease. Interesting. And are there still artists there? They are. Mm-hmm. They are still incarcerated there. They're still incarcerated there. So you have some buildings right now that I think that are turning over, that tenants are turning over. <laughs> oh, I guess that always happens. <laughs> well, is, that, is there more of that happening now than in the past? Or this is just what you have to be prepared for? Well, I have a larger inventory now. So yeah. Mm-hmm. things turn over. And I don't feel like there is a particular storm of turnovers. I have three properties that I'm going to be redoing this year. A couple of little humble duplexes that will turn into retail spaces and then an old cabinet shop that will also turn into retail space. And I am now thinking in terms of as I redo that, because I hold on to essentially everything that I renovate. That really changes your business plan, really changes how you renovate a building if you're facing the prospect of taking care of it for another 20 years. The romantic maintenance. Right, right. The romance of maintenance is that there is none. I will renovate those buildings. I'll make decisions based on the knowledge that, look, every five years, three years, I might have a new shop in here. And that's just kind of, especially in the days of Amazon, things we just, yeah, Amazon's really having an effect. Mm-hmm, changing I'm the sure game. I'm sure in the suburbs, but very much down here too. I'll just plan around it. Something that you just said reminded me of the term that you were raised with, the righteousness of work or work being righteous. Mm-hmm. What was that? Tell me about that again. Well... I had this very biblical grandmother. <laughs> she was kind of, I think, the moral compass of the family and made an impression on my father. My father grew up poor during the Depression. And he also grew up Pentecostal. They were part of an Assemblies of God church. And then my father, in the course of his medical training, became part of the public health vanguard of anti-drinking, anti-smoking, anti-drugs, sex education, things like that. And things that are now in all schools, but Mm. had a very missional attitude. And that rubbed off on all three of his kids. We are all burdened by that now, (laughs) that our our work needs to mean something. And he was also very lucky, and maybe it was because he felt that way about his work. He was very successful, financially successful at his work. And of course, my father was not overly concerned about the financial angle. He was he was interested in changing the world. So that's how he would mark his success, not by what his income was that year, but the number of customers he had reached. And I suppose I have that mm-hmm. as well. I don't have it. You know, my father's salesmanship skills and such, those were a matter of survival because of the environment that he grew up in. And I did not. I grew up in the suburbs, the son of a physician. So I'm just not as hungry as my father was. I don't have the chip on my shoulder that he did. But I feel very fortunate that I've been able to grow a company that means something Mm -hmm. and means something to not just me and my family, but means something to my community. Absolutely. And that perhaps has inspired others Mm -hmm. uh, to 
come and invest. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap up here and I always like to ask people, you know, is there anything that any message that you want to leave to people who might be listening? Well, while I do have the microphone, I'd like to address the topic of gentrification. Please. Which in the press, and I'm not one of those staunch Republicans who complains all the day about the liberal press. That's not where I'm coming from at all. But the press, particularly in these days (laughs) of journalism, it seems like the people writing the stories are typically 26 years old and don't have a lot of experience, Mm -hmm. but have a lot of ideals. The typical narrative in the press about gentrification is that it's a negative thing and that the poor are being displaced by the rich. And I think that is inaccurate. That does not jibe with my experience. I cannot boast broad experience. I don't know what development, community development is like in Des Moines or Longview or San Francisco. My experience is at the corner of 8th and Bishop in Bishop Arts. But what is maybe unusual about my perspective is that I have a very hands-on relationship with my properties in the neighborhood. I speak Spanish, and so the Hispanic population around now is, is very accessible to me. And I pretty much stayed on this corner for 25 years now and watched and had the benefit of some education beforehand that's given me some perspective. And what I see is that a little bit of gentrification is a wonderful thing. For example, I during the school year, I read to third graders at Reagan Elementary, which is half block from mm-hmm. here. And that school is all children of immigrants, all children of Mexican immigrants. And my children went to a similar school. And so Reagan Elementary is, I'm sure it's 99% Hispanic. I'm sure it's 100% qualifies for school lunch, mm-hmm. all that, those indicia. My children went to Rosemont Elementary, and probably 85% of Rosemont Elementary is exactly like Reagan yep. Elementary. But 15% or so of Rosemont, those families are coming from Kessler Park. And it's not so much that they're white kids, which they're not all, but they're children coming from more highly educated parents. And those parents are part of the, it's not called PTA anymore, PTO. They're involved in the school. They're yeah. volunteering and they're establishing expectations for the teachers, holding them accountable and such. And so Rosemont is a completely different, a much better school than Reagan is. There's more opportunity there. And I'm not talking about opportunity for just the 15%. I'm talking about opportunity for those other 85% that does not exist here at Reagan. And I have seen when... New folks come in and buy a house on the street. They paid a lot more for the house than the folks who bought there 30 years ago. And they come from different places. And so they have different notions of litter control, trash pickup, of the attentiveness of code enforcement, things like that, public safety. They lobby for more cops on the street. And that doesn't just benefit them. It benefits everybody Mm -hmm. on that street. Then also, gentrification is creating jobs. My sense is that among our humble Hispanic neighbors around here, the concern is not so much that, oh, they don't feel comfortable going into that coffee shop or 
they resent people parking in front of their house to go to a restaurant or something. They want jobs for their grandchildren after they get out of Adamson High School. Mm-hmm. And you get that from investment. You get that from a certain amount of gentrification. And I also, the narrative of gentrification in the papers is also, I find it really paternalistic that somehow mm-hmm. these people are not capable of making, you know, these people making rational, self-interested financial decisions about whether to sell their house or where to move or things like that. And I'm not sure that they need the help that... That we think they do. That we think they do. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing just fine. You know, I hmm. was talking with Jesus, who I've had some dealings with, and he's been on the block. He and his family have owned a house right next to a very popular shop here in Bishop Arts. For I don't know, he's probably been there 30 years. And I was asking him, I was like, oh, well, you know, do you want to move? He goes, why would I move? It's the safest it's ever been. <laughs> so, there you have it. Yeah. Uh, now, I have not been witness to the wholesale replacement of a neighborhood like does happen. Mm-hmm. But what's going on in Dallas, especially because our Hispanic neighbors tend to be a high equity crowd. They tend to have bought those houses. So they stand to gain as well. Anyway, that's my Good. little pet peeve is to challenge the conventional wisdom about gentrification. You know, when I paid Mr. Rosas $200,000 for his house, he was thrilled to go down and buy two houses in Midlothian for his family. I don't feel like, I don't think he felt displaced at all. I think he felt like he had won the lottery. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time thank you. today. Thank for you. your flattering to for be your asked thoughts. these questions. Flattering that someone cares. <laughs> If you like what you heard today and the direction this podcast is pointed, subscribe to Rice Leaders Radio on iTunes, leave us a comment and a five-star rating. You can also check out the Rise Leaders website at www.rise-leaders.com to find the resources I pull from in my coaching and consulting work and that I find central to transformative leadership. If you're committed to leading with a clear vision and from core values and taking your team to the next level, then get in touch. You can reach me, Leanne Mallory, from my website. I'd be honored to hear from you. I appreciate you tuning in today and especially for being the type of person interested in learning more about how you can elevate your part of the world. Take good care.